Good morning, everybody. Hey, you guys look great today. Thank you for being here. Good morning, everyone joining us online. I'm sure you look great there uh, wherever you are as, as well, but we're so glad you can join us this morning. However you got here or for whatever reason that you're tuning in, I'm really, really glad uh, that you're joining us here today. Thank you to Megan and Jessa for sharing your stories with us this morning. Let's just give them a hand real quick before we continue. One of the things that I appreciate about sharing both of their stories this morning is that we have a young woman who, uh, you know, coming to the end of the story she's telling, uh, things have made sense, and she can tell you why what happened happened, perhaps, and then another who, uh, I think she, she said, you know, I, we, it's not that we understand uh, why we lost this child, but that isn't, we trust, we know that isn't the whole story, even if we don't understand it. In our scripture reading this morning, which we're going to look at in just a minute, uh, we're going to meet two disciples, two followers of Jesus, who are leaving Jerusalem on Easter morning, presumably because they have uh, lost hope. They've given up and they're moving on. And many of us have been told, perhaps you've heard, that the story of the resurrection of Jesus was created by the followers of Jesus to cope with their grief or uh, just outright deceive people. And what I hope you'll see this morning is that there's just no evidence for that. The reality is that we meet people in the story of the resurrection who respond exactly the way that you or I would to news of a resurrection. They are hurting, they are confused, they are disbelieving, and they're leaving. Okay? So let's turn together to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. If you want to borrow a Bible this morning, they're under the chairs in front of you. We'll be on page 885. Luke chapter 24, page 885. And while you're turning there, <clears throat> just a little more uh, of the setting. I just want you to be able to hear what these two followers of Jesus are experiencing. You know, for us, we understand that Easter represents the turning point in human history. This is the watershed moment uh, up to which everything before it is building and to which everything after continues. And we know this morning that in Nairobi and New York and Kiev and Kyrgyzstan and in giant sprawling med mega churches in South Korea and tiny little house churches in China, people are calling on and worshiping Jesus as King and Lord because he's alive. Because he's still loose and at large in the world. That's how C.S. Lewis describes it. He's still loose and at large and he's still drawing and calling and working in people's lives. Do you know that one of the fastest growing churches in the world is in Iran? And the reason that they keep reporting is that Jesus appears to them in dreams and talks to them. Okay? So I don't know what your morning was like, but that's happening. And we get to see that. These two disciples have no way of knowing what's coming. They have no access to what we've gotten to see. But Jesus draws near to them to show them three things. Okay, this is what we're talking about this morning. He draws near to show them, first of all, that from now on, on this side of Easter, everything, all of reality centers on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus now. If you have come this morning and you are wrestling with spiritual things and you are not sure what you believe and you don't know what to make of 
God, Jesus, Bible, church, Holy Spirit, fill in the blank. Jesus is going to make the case this morning that if you want to understand, you have to come to grips with the cross and the resurrection. There are so many interesting things to talk about with religion. And they are interesting. But this is the one thing you have to understand. The second is that if you want to walk with him now, if you want that living, vibrant relationship with God through Christ, he's going to tell us where to find him. And then finally we'll see it's all of grace. Everything is, it, it's grace from beginning to end, okay? So here's our story. This is Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, this is Easter day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Some, of our women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. One biblical scholar, a critical or a skeptical biblical scholar studying this has said, Emmaus never happened. Then he adds, Emmaus is always happening. Emmaus never happened. Emmaus is always happening. I'd like to argue he's half right. But it's just his way of saying that this is a legend. This never really happened, but it's a beautiful story, an undeniably beautiful symbolic story about how the story of the resurrection, whether it's true or not, draws us from despair 
to genuine hope and renewal? Well, Luke and all of the other writers of the New Testament would universally disagree with our friend the scholar. Uh, Luke in particular goes out of his way, as I hope to show you in a second, that this is not a legend. This was not a vision. This was not a dream. It is not a nice story. This is a shocking, unrepeatable historical event that actually happened. And he gives us one clue in verse 18. If you just look there real quickly, this is interesting. There are two main characters in the story, but only one of them gets a name. And let's have a quiz. Are you ready? His name is? Cleopas. Good job. I just want to make sure you're awake. Okay? Cleopas. It's the only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible, and we don't know anything else about him. He just drops his name right in there. Richard Bauckham is a world-class historian and scholar at St. Andrews University, and he's written a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he says, you know, what we miss as modern readers when we see a name dropped in a story like that is that if you were writing a fictional story or a legend, then either both characters would have names or neither of the characters would have names, right? So if you're writing the Odyssey or something like that, everybody gets a name. Balcom says, when we write today, when we write a non fiction, historical account of something, and we want to point people to our sources, we use footnotes, right? Little number on the page, you go to the bottom, it says, here's the journal entry, or the, here's my source, and you can go look at it for yourself. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have footnotes. And what they would do, and you see this all over the New Testament, especially around the resurrection, you see these names that we don't get anywhere else just dropped into the story like this, and it's the author's way of saying, Malcolm says it's the author's way of saying, this is my living source. And if you want to know if this really happened, they love mail. And you can ask them. And they will tell you what really happened. So Cleopas isn't just a character in the story. This is Luke's way of saying, this is the eyewitness whose oral testimony is the basis of the story that I'm telling you right now. And if you want to know if this happened, you can, he's alive today and you can find him. So this is what happened to Cleopas. The disciples are leaving because they think it's over. And Jesus is dead and they are really struggling. You look at verses 14 and 15. It says they were talking with each other. They were talking and discussing. Some of your translations will say they were disputing and debating with one another. When Jesus asks them in verse 17, what are you talking about? Literally, he's asking, what is it that you are throwing back and forth? So they are confused and hurting. They do not understand what's going on. Maybe that's you this morning. And it says that Jesus himself, I love that, that himself, Jesus himself, not an apparition, not a ghost, not a looky-loo, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. The NIV says, walked along with them. That's my favorite part of the story. Jesus himself drew near in the midst of their confusion and pain and walked with them. Walking, in the Bible, walking is a theologically rich metaphor for a real relationship with a living God. God is often described in the Old Testament as drawing near and walking. So they have given up on Jesus. 
Jesus is not done with them. That may be you this morning. Jesus draws near. But it goes on to say in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Have you ever felt or do you feel right now that people around you are connecting with something in the story of Jesus that is just you just cannot see? You've tried, you, you know, you've given it your, your honest effort, but for whatever reason, you just cannot see Jesus the way that people around you seem to be seeing him. Well, if you look at the story here, their eyes were kept. Something is actually doing this to them, and I, I just want to say in this story, it's actually the Lord God himself who's keeping them from seeing. And it would behoove us to ask, well, why? Why would God ever want to keep people from seeing Jesus? And the answer is that he's teaching. God is always teaching. And what he is doing is trying to show these two that in the resurrection of Jesus now some things have changed. Prior to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the way people related to God had a lot to do with priests and the temple and sacrifices. And there's this huge sections of the Old Testament that help people to understand how you come into relationship with God. And what God is showing them now is your, conf- your confusion about what's happened and your inability to see are, are linked and that you do not understand what's happened on the cross. And if you want to know me now, you have to come to grips with this. From now on, the cross of Jesus alone is what's going to make a real relationship with God possible. Now what follows then is this really ironic interaction. Jesus asks them what they're talking about. It says they stood still and they looked sad and then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on around here? Isn't that funny? Can't you imagine Cleopas cringing years later as he tells this story? I, I literally said to him, do you not know what's going on? And it was Jesus the whole time. But we, Emmaus is happening all the time. How many times have you said to the living God, do you not know what's going on here? Duh. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus says, what things? Isn't, he, isn't that or What things? Well, concerning Jesus. Oh. <laughs> a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. They're, they're really honoring him, but look at the words they're not using anymore. You don't see the word Lord, the, the word Messiah, the Son of God, none of that. And they say in verse 21, but we had hoped... We'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Emmaus happens all the time. See, we love miracles and displays of power. And we want a God, we would worship a God who would just sweep in and make everything right. And that's, that's not bad, by the way. Cleopas is not wrong to be longing for the redemption of Israel. You're longing for a better world and for relationships that work and for healing and to experience the love of God. Nothing that you want could possibly exceed what God actually offers you in the Lord Jesus. But the story that God is telling is not primarily 
about displays of power. It is not a story of shock and awe. And it isn't the darkness out there that God has come to deal with. Because the fact is that that won't actually change you or change the world. The story that God is telling is that Jesus has come to deal with the darkness within first. If you are longing for a new creation, a new world, Jesus is going to do that. But there is a cross first. And until we understand why this had to happen, we will not see Jesus. He will remain a mystery to us. Cleopas has all of the data, like so many Americans. Cleopas has all of the data that he needs to make an informed decision about who Jesus is. He has seen his mighty deeds. He's heard his words. They saw him crucified. They have the objective evidence of the empty tomb. They're even aware that all of this somehow is connected to the redemption of Israel, but they cannot fit the pieces together. Why? Jesus tells us why in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe what the scriptures have said. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer? Wasn't it necessary? You ask 100 people today, what is the greatest problem in your life? You will get a hundred different answers. You ask a hundred people, what is the greatest problem in the world? You'll get a dozen or so. Global warming and terrorism and war and injustice and politics and so on. But the cross of Jesus stubbornly insists on a different story. And that is that the first problem is us. That it is our rebellion against God that is at the root of everything. And that God is holy in an awesome, unimaginable way. And that we are lost if we're not saved. Three things we hate. We are the problem. We are our own problem. God is absolutely holy and just and righteous and good. And we must be saved or we will perish forever. And there is no way to make sense of the cross of Jesus if you drop any of those three things. So, that means if you're here today and you're struggling with spiritual things, you, maybe you are wondering this morning, are spiritual things even real? Do I even have something called a soul? How, how would anyone know the difference between all the different world religions. How would you even know which one is true? And why would we choose you know, revealed doctrine like this as opposed to self-made spiritualities that I get to control and things like that? If you're here and mystified by talk of a relationship with the living God, Easter is the perfect time to ask those questions. And I would suggest to you that if you are even asking those questions, it's because God has drawn near to you. And he wants you to see. And I'm telling you, from the word of God, 
that if you want to see, you have to come to grips with why Jesus died and why he died in the way that he did. There's no way around that now. Foolish ones and slow of heart, wasn't it necessary? This is why you can't see because you don't understand why I had to suffer the way that I did. And then he goes on in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. When it says Moses and all the prophets, it's just what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, the greatest Bible study in the history of the world. On the way to Emmaus, he opened to them all the scriptures. Well, that's not what it says. Sorry. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, meaning all the scriptures are about Jesus. So when, I can just imagine this world's greatest Bible study, he begins in Genesis. And he says, when God says to Eve that one of your own descendants, a son from your own body is going to come and crush the head of the serpent and the serpent is going to strike his heel, that was about the cross. That was about me. Abel's lamb. An acceptable sacrifice that stirs up the wrath and envy of a self-righteous brother. That was about me. The story of Noah, the whole ark thing. That was about me. I am the ark. And if you're in me, I will carry you through the storm of God's wrath. When God told Abraham that he would have a son, singular, an offspring, who would be a blessing to all the nations of the world, that's me. I'm the one, I'm the son that Abraham was waiting for. I'm Jacob's ladder that connects heaven to earth. He says that in John chapter 1. I am the true and greater Joseph. I'm the one whose brothers cast him into outer darkness, intending to do evil to him, but God intended it for the salvation of many. That's just Genesis. We still have like five miles to go. We haven't even got, in Exodus, I am the Passover lamb. It's my blood over you that atones for you, that covers you, that protects you from the wrath of God. I am every sacrifice in, in the book of Leviticus. The, those are all about me. His name, Yeshua, is literally Joshua, the captain of God's armies, the one who leads his people to victory. He is the, the true son of David who's slain the only giant that actually matters, and his victory becomes ours. He is Isaiah's suffering servant, and Jeremiah's new covenant maker, and Ezekiel's new temple, and Daniel's divine king, and on and on and on and on it goes. He's everything. And he's saying to them, can't you see? It always had to be this way. Because God has always been telling just one story. And that is rescue of sinners. And it had to be done. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Didn't it always have to be this way? And the story ends in just such an interesting way. It says they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further. Just, just that's another. It's another little subtle clue about who Jesus is. Because there's like a half dozen stories in the Old Testament where when God wants someone's attention, he will pass them by. You remember reading any of those? Because we read one two weeks ago. 
in that story of, of, in Exodus, when God is revealing himself to Moses, it says, and Moses passed by and spoke his name to Moses. This is just another little hint. Look, the, the God that spoke to Moses on the mountain is the one who's been walking with you on the way to Emmaus. And what does it say? It says they, they, they urged him to stay with them. They don't even know who he is yet. And they're, oh, would you please stay with us? It says they sat at the table. He took bread and broke it, and their eyes were opened. And all of a sudden, they recognize him. And what does he do? Poof, gone. <laughs> Why? This whole story is about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus on this side of Easter. So it started with one really amazing metaphor that Jesus drew near and walked with them. It ends with another story. For three years, these guys have been walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, had access to Jesus, personal access to Jesus. And this may seem benign to us, but they ate with Jesus. That's why this happens. They ate with him. And in, in this context, meals are more than just fuel for your body. But it's a way of saying who belongs to who. Even today, okay, the research is clear. Families that eat together stick together. So it's at a meal that he sits down and he finally lets them see as though to say, this is what relationship with me is going to look like now. And it's not going to be flesh and blood. Poof, I'm gone. What does he point them to? He says, that, that we will meet him from now on in his written word by the Spirit. This is, listen to this. So we come by the cross, but we walk with Jesus in a real relationship in his word by the Spirit. Listen to the way he talks about the written word. Because he could have just as easily said, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe everything I've been telling you for the last two months, three months. Right? It's so funny, in verse 20, when they're talking about Jesus to Jesus, they're quoting Jesus. They say to him, well, what are you talking about? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and, but he was handed over to the, the, to, you know, the chief priests and the leaders, and then they crucified him, and blah, 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 blah. And he, that's exactly what he said was going to happen. He could have just as easily said, foolish ones, it's so hard to believe everything I told you. But he points them to the written Word of God. And he says, it's your failure to hear this that is keeping you from seeing. And then where does he take them? Beginning with Moses. He walks them through all the scriptures. And their hearts burn. They don't even know who he is yet. And they're asking, would you please just stay? That, that burning, that's, that is the Spirit of God making the Word of God alive to his people. And the point is this. From now on, things are a little different. Okay, there are people in Mumbai and Borneo and Port-au-Prince this morning worshiping Jesus as Lord and claiming a real relationship with him. How can he be in all those places at one time? Because Hudson is not that special. It's not like, well, I'll do Hudson 2022 and then I'll catch Borneo, you know, late. No. A real and living relationship with him now. He's saying, you will find me in my word. And I will make it alive to you by my spirit. Christ is risen. We come now only by the cross. 
And if you want to walk with him, he has given us his address. He's told us where we'll find him. And it's here in his word. If you're here this morning and you have questions about spiritual things, we have all been there. We are, we are all there, okay? <laughs> but if you're just struggling to put all these pieces together, I implore you, take advantage of Christianity Explored, which starts in two weeks. They're going to take you to meet him here in his word. Because, and he promises, if you look for him there, you'll find him. I'll invite the worship team to come on up in the choir and everybody else. Last thing then that this story shows us and is just a reminder is that everything that we're talking about is a gift of God's grace. If, if you are here or you're watching online and you're wrestling with spiritual things, it is because he has drawn near to you. The fact that you are wrestling would, would indicate to me that he is striving with you for your soul. I want you to notice in the story that Jesus drew near when they were despondent, when they could not see. Jesus began walking with them before they knew who he was, before they were capable of responding to him. When they, when they insulted him and said, are you the only nutball here who doesn't know what's going on? He stayed with them. You have done that to the living God, okay? And he stayed with you. When they insulted him, when they misunderstood him, he's always teaching them. And even, in, you know, this thing of making them blind and now suddenly they can see, it's just a reminder that we are in relationship with God by grace alone. So I invite you this morning, I implore you this morning, if you feel that burning. If you feel as though you are seeing now just for the very first time, that is a miracle on par with the resurrection. And I implore you to respond. And for those who are still just figuring it out, man, come to Christianity Explored. Let's figure some things out together, okay? Let's stand and sing to the risen King together.